Hello, this is John W. Henry. Part of being a mogul is realizing how fortunate that you are. As owner of the Red Sox, I have been fortunate enough to win four World Series championships. That includes the greatest comeback in baseball history when we broke the curse in 2004. As owner of Liverpool, I have been fortunate enough to win every trophy in English soccer. That includes a sixth Champions League trophy and Liverpool's first Premier League championship. We made Liverpool the champions of England for the first time since 1991. As great as all of those moments were, the biggest thrill for me was seeing my business partner, LeBron James, become the all-time leading scorer in NBA history. I'll never forget where I was that fateful night in February when LeBron made that shot. Only a couple more, and maybe the Lakers could have won the game too. I can't wait to celebrate with all of our business partners at Fenway Sports Group. We'll plan a get-together at my 18,000-square-foot Nantucket residence after the Lakers' last regular season game. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 10. 10. I, I did this 10 episodes. This is longer than I stick to most things. Episode 10 of the Fenway on Fire podcast. Tonight's beverage of the day. You know what? There's a few beverages today, but the one I'm enjoying right now is my beloved Guinness Extra Stout. So most people, when they think of Guinness, they think of the Guinness Draft, the stuff that comes on the uh, the nitrogen tap or the little widget in the can where it's really kind of like has a like silky, flat texture. And I love Guinness Draft. Don't get me wrong. But if I'm going to the store, going to the packy to get beer for, for the house, it's the Guinness Extra. So the Guinness Extra it's a little bit higher in alcohol, so the draft is 4.1, the extra is 5.5%, so a little bit similar to a, a butt heavy in terms of the ABV level. But critically, the difference is it's the normal carbonation instead of the nitrogen carb, so that really makes kind of that roasted malt character pop, so whereas the nitrogen in the draft kind of dull some of those sharp notes you get a little bit more in the guinness uh, extra but compared to like some like american stouts not that you find a lot of them these days in craft beer it's it's still a little smoother overall but yeah this is my house beer so if you're a beer person i think it's important to have a house beer so by a house beer it's something that you just have in the house all the time something that's accessible Something that if you come home on a weeknight, you can have one or two of and enjoy and not get wasted. Something that you can buy a 12-pack of for a reasonable amount of money. As much as I love craft beer, I mean, you know, who's coming home on a Wednesday night drinking two or three, seven or percent hazy IPAs? I'm sure some people are, but not a lot of people. There is a place for those, just like there's a place for the more approachable beers. And that's why Guinness Extra Stout is my house beer. And I have my own little homebrew that's vaguely similar. I haven't done it in a long time. But that is the beverage of the week, beverage of the episode. So, pitchers and catchers reported today. We had the Super Bowl over the weekend. And that just reminded me that the World Series, compared to the Super Bowl, you can't even compare. It's just not even close. Give me the World Series 100 times out of 100. 
a million times out of a million over the Super Bowl for just just so many reasons. A of all, the pregame show for the Super Bowl, oh my God, it's unwatchable. Oh my God. I would rather, you know, do whatever household chores I put off. I'd rather, like, I... I, I like to buy books more than I like to read them. So I have all these books in my house that I haven't read. I, you know, I should, instead of watching the Super Bowl pregame, which I didn't this year, but if I'm given a choice between catching up on my book reading and the Super Bowl pregame, give me the books. Just lock me in the goddamn library for fuck's sake. Even, and just the pomp and circumstance too. So like the pregame show starts at what? Two in the morning. It goes all goddamn day. But 6 o'clock, 6 o'clock was when the game starts 6-ish. It used to be 6. But now, 6 o'clock, that's just when like all the ceremonies and all the bullshit starts. The, the pomp, the circumstance, the ceremonies, the multiple songs, the people on the field. Oh, my God. Even the Red Sox, they're over-the-top ceremonies. You know, they wouldn't dare go as far as the NFL does with the Super Bowl. You know, for... You sit down at 6 o'clock thinking the game might start relatively soon, and you sit there for 45 fucking minutes while you have the multiple singers, the multiple dancers come out. You know, even the coin toss takes 15 fucking minutes. Jesus Christ. No thank you. No thank you. And people used to like watching the Super Bowl for the commercials. The commercials suck. The commercials haven't been good in years. You know, TV commercials have declined in quality and in creativity and in dare I say art, just like TV shows and movies have, they're all dead art forms. They're all not worth my time. They're all not worth your time. They all suck. Like literally, like you know, the Ben Affleck Duncan commercial was okay. There might have been a couple other that were decent, but nothing memorable. Nothing like I grew up with in the nineties or even the two thousands. They're all terrible. And don't get me started on the goddamn halftime show. So this year with the Rihanna halftime show where she's on the little floating platform and you get the, the guys in the white suits and the wings doing whatever, I literally fell asleep. So I watched the whole first half of that game. I watched like probably about, I watched, I, I think I tuned to, the, to, um, to Fox at six o'clock. So I suffered through all the pregame or all the pomp and circumstance. I didn't suffer through the pregame. I was doing something else during pregame, but I watched the whole pregame bullshit from six o'clock to kickoff, watched the first half. And then during the halftime show, I literally fell asleep and I missed Kansas City's whole third quarter drive, um, which lasted five minutes of game time. And so the halftime show wasn't good this year. It's never good. Like, seriously. Who's ever watched the Super Bowl halftime show and been like wildly entertained at best at best? It's like, OK, that was all right. Where's the football? So. The whole thing, I can I don't I was going to say take it or leave it. I'm leaving it to say nothing about the god awful officiating the NFL, which Roger Goodell said has never been better. And then we had that fucking display the field or they're more concerned about painting the grass green and painting these massive logos than actually having a playable surface. The NFL is a joke. The Super Bowl is the most overrated spectacle in all of sports. And you know what? If the Patriots aren't in it, 
I could take it or leave it. I mean, I'll watch it because what the fuck else am I going to do on the second Sunday in February? But Jesus Christ, if anyone, anyone tries to tell you that's a better product than the World Series, just slap them. Just slap them or maybe just shake them like a violent shake. Just grab their arms and shake them. Like, are you sure? Get the fuck out of here. It's not. If anyone says that, they don't have any brain cells or they're just one of these like football chauvinists where they think the NFL and football is the greatest thing ever. They're, you know, the Scott Zolax or and I said, because I love, you know, I love Zo as much as the next guy. He's one of those people, you know, live, breathe, eat, sleep, football, fine, whatever. But as far as I'm concerned, what we had on Sunday, and even the even with like a competitive game, I don't even want to call it a good game because neither team played a fucking iota of defense. Yeah, that's not better than World Series. October takes a steaming dump on the NFL playoffs every year, as far as I'm concerned. And that's just that. But anyway, it is now baseball season. That's another thing. So after the Super Bowl, a lot of people like after the final whistle or on Monday like to announce hey, it's baseball season. It's baseball season. And it is sure fine. There's a little bit of a, a little brother feel to it. It's like, okay, we're waiting for the NFL to end to take our turn. No, no, no. So that part of it, I don't love. But spring training is here. And the way the NFL schedule has expanded over the years where the Super Bowl ends and then pitchers and catchers report within, you know, a few days just kind of works out that way. So I am happy spring training is here. And for us in Red Sox Nation, the good news is out of the 34 spring training games, 27 are going to be televised. Most of them are going to be on S and a few will be on ESPN. And that's a lot more than we've had in recent years. One of the things I think Nesson has done to cut costs, maybe part of his, you know, finding announcers or talent who want to actually work these spring games, you know, they've cut it down. Uh, so I am happy that most of these games are going to be on TV. Hopefully the money that the Red Sox should have given to Xander Bogarts wasn't used to cover Nesson's production costs. But this is a good move. I don't want to crap on it too much. I mean, they have to do something to get people excited or invested into the 2023 Boston Red Sox. You have so many new guys on the team. They need to do everything they can to get people interested, excited, engaged, more than you know the hardcore iBluminati. And that's a whole other thing. The iBluminati or the Bluminati. They want to call themselves the Sox Positive or whatever the fuck it is. No, you are the iBluminati, and that is spelled lowercase i, capital B, Luminati. It's like an iPhone or an iPad or an iMac. You are the iBluminati. You are giving blind loyalty to a GM who has not accomplished anything as a general manager, as a chief baseball officer, as a number one guy leading a baseball operations department in his life. You're giving him credit for things that happened at Tampa Bay when he was at best of number two. He was in the mix. Contrast what Haim Bloom has done the last four years with Andrew Friedman did with the Dodgers. Did Andrew Friedman ever have a year like last year? Not in his freaking life. So you're the iBluminati. You can't rename yourself. And it is lowercase i, capital B. That's it.
With pitchers and catchers just reporting um, on the 15th as we're recording, uh, we're just starting to kind of get into the feel of spring trading. Uh, all the hitters aren't required to be there yet. Even the media is just starting to uh, trickle down. Uh, Sean McAdam, he had a tweet uh, noting that only four uh, papers slash web publications and one uh, TV station were there in spring trading, kind of uh, comparing that to uh, the coverage spring trading used to get back uh, in the glory days of the Red Sox. Uh, but I think you'll see more people start to filter down uh, from media as well as players. There's some narratives, or I don't even say narrative, but so, some kind of themes from the media starting to come out of there. We're going to touch on that next week when you have more folks down there and uh, some of the stuff that's happened now has had a little bit more time to marinate. But one thing I did want to talk about in relation to the 2023 Red Sox is the question, is 2023 a bridge year, quote-unquote bridge year? Uh, this came into focus for me uh, when I saw a tweet from Tyler Milliken referring to 2023 as a bridge year. And then the hardcore Ibluminati, the people that are more positive than Tyler is, challenging, oh, this isn't a bridge year, blah, blah, blah. So listen, is 2023 a bridge year? My answer, only if we're lucky is 2023 a bridge year. A bridge year is the absolute best case scenario for this team. The reason is, a bridge year implies there's something worthwhile on the other side. What's the alternative to a bridge year? The alternative to a bridge year is drowning. Literally, trying to swim across a body of water that is, you know, deep enough that you can't just ford it or walk across. And you have to either swim or you need a bridge. Now... Maybe some of these Ibluminati would think, oh, we're already on the other side. We're on solid ground, and they're just living in fucking happy land. That's that's not what it is. So this is, at best, a bridge year, because High and Bloom is hoping that eventually these young players are going to hit, and it's going to be awesome, as he told us. Jesus fucking Christ. And, and from the beginning, the whole bridge year term has been misused or misunderstood, I should say, not misused. So the first time I remember hearing the term bridge year was the 2009-2010 offseason when Theo used it. So for those who don't remember or weren't old enough, after the 2009 uh, season, the Red Sox had a really, really good team in 2009. Uh, they got pipped for uh, the division by the Yankees. The Yankees loaded up in the 0809 offseason, signed Mark Teixeira, signed A.J. Burnett, locked up A-Rod. They ran away with the division and won the World Series. But the Red Sox had a really good team in 2009. But unfortunately, they got swept in the first round of the division series by the uh, Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, as they were. Um, Jason Bay was uh, the Red Sox power hitting left fielder in 2009. The uh, Red Sox acquired him in 2008. They traded away Manny Ramirez after he shot himself out of town. They brought in Jason Bay's replacement. Jason Bay was very good in, in, down the stretch in 08 and in 2009. Um, they also had Victor Martinez. Um, so when Jason Bay hit free agency after that 09 season, the Red Sox didn't bring him back. They also didn't go after Matt Holiday, the other premium uh, power hitting outfielder. And, you know, fans were upset. And Theo said, this is a bridge year. And what he's trying to say is, All right, we're trying to bridge the gap till our young guys come up. But compare that bridge year to the so-called 2023 bridge year. Listen to the names that, that 
the Red Sox carried over from 2009 to 2010. And think, do the 2022 to 2023 Red Sox have anything similar? So from 09 to 2010, the Red Sox carried over. David Ortiz, Hall of Famer. Dustin Pedroia, de facto leader of the team, borderline Hall of Famer, probably would have been a Hall of Famer if Manny Machado didn't destroy his fucking knee. Kevin Euclid, all-star, had some MVP caliber seasons, short peak, but from, you know, 07 to 2011, he was a core guy. Jacoby Ellsbury, you know, one of the best leadoff hitters of his era. You know, 2011, you know, when he almost won MVP, maybe a little bit of a fluke, but very, very good player for the Red Sox, homegrown guy. John Lester, homegrown ace. Where's homegrown ace on this fucking team? That would be nowhere. Jonathan Papelbon, homegrown closer. We don't have anybody like that. Instead, the Red Sox had to uh, give Kenley Jansen his mid-30s $32 million. Clay Buckholtz, again, who on this current team would be comparable to Clay Buckholtz? A homegrown pitcher, you know, Buckholtz, did he, you know, achieve his full potential? Maybe not, but he's better than anybody you have now. And then Victor Martinez, a power-hitting, switch-hitting catcher. Who would you rather have, Victor Martinez? Or the carjacker. It's not even close. So, 09 to 2010, the Red Sox had a real core. And what did they do to supplement that core? They signed John Lackey. Okay. Lackey was kind of mediocre in 2010. He pitched hurt in 2011, was terrible. Missed 2012. But still, he helped you win a World Series in 2013. And was very good in 2014 until he demanded a trade because the Red Sox fucked over his best friend, John Lester. So... That was the a bridge move going from 09 to 2010. Oh, we signed John Lackey. They gave John Lackey $90 million. What other major league pitcher did or major league player have the Red Sox given $90 million to this offseason? The closest you have is Masataka Yoshida, a guy who's never played major league baseball. Oh, 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 and one other move on the air quotes, bridge year going to 2009-2010. Adrian Beltre. He's actually going to go to the Hall of Fame. He was awesome. He was incredible for the Red Sox in 2010. One of the worst moves Theo Epstein ever made was after bringing in Adrian Beltre, letting him go, and deciding to trade for Adrian Gonzalez instead. Adrian Beltre was awesome. Any Red Sox fan who remembers that 2010 season has nothing but fond memories of Adrian Beltre. And, you know, dare I say, if you went position by position, the original quote-unquote bridge team 2010 versus this 2023 team, there might not be a single player on the 2023 Red Sox you would take on the 2010 Red Sox. You know what? Because, you know, who's the one guy we have this year? It's it's, um, Raphael Devers. Gun to my head. I have a hard time picking him over Adrian Beltre, at least for one year. Or Adrian Beltre played, what, seven years after that 2010 season? And as much as I love Rafi Devers, you know, Adrian Beltre, he's going to the Hall of Fame, 3,000 hits. <sighs> yeah, so the original quote-unquote bridge team versus this 2023 bridge team, not even close. That 2010 Red Sox would wipe the floor 
with this collection put together by High and Bloom. But let's kind of get back to the bigger point because this kind of ties into what High and Bloom is trying to do or maybe trying to do. So um, there was a column in the Boston Globe by uh, Chris Gasper where he said High and Bloom's plan was to wait till 2025 in the meantime put together a quote-unquote Potemkin village. Um, and so I was not familiar with that term Potemkin village. You know, I was able to kind of deduce the meaning by, um, you know, just the context of what he was saying, but I just wanted to be sure. And I'm a pretty literary guy. I mean, back in the day, uh, taking those verbal SATs, I scored a 690. So I, I consider, you know, language a strength, but I wanted to double check. So I Googled this. And so according to Wikipedia, a Potemkin village, quote, any false construct devised to disguise a shortcoming or improve appearances. So basically a half-assed bridge team. We want to make it look good, but it really sucks. So 2010, the Red Sox had a real core. They made a couple moves that weren't popular with the fan base. Theo got roasted for it. You know, fast forward to now where we have Rafi Devers and not much else. And the Illuminati still think this team is good. But the reason why Theo did what he did was because he was waiting for the minor leaguers. And in Gasper's column, you know, Haim's waiting for the minor leaguers. And he's putting together the Potemkin village of a baseball team until those minor leaguers get here. So who are those minor leaguers that Theo was excited about? that he didn't want to block, that he was bridging to in 2010. So I have a link right here from uh, minorleagueball.com. This is an SB Nation website. This is a list put together by John Sickles, August 12th, 2010. Oh, my 20th birthday. Uh, and John Sickles, longtime uh, prospect analyst guy. Uh, used to work for ESPN, SB Nation. I don't know if he's still writing, but he's a guy with some credentials. So... We're going to go through these lists of, um, we're going to go through the top 10 prospects the Red Sox had in 2010. Number one was Ryan Miss Westmoreland. And, you know, Ryan Westmoreland, he could have been great. He only played one healthy season in organized baseball after he was drafted um, until he had brain surgery with uh, the malformations in his brain. And uh, reading this description at the time, missed an entire year following brain surgery. He hit off a tee, but at this point, just living a normal non-baseball life will be a blessing. And sidebar, he's still dealing with the complications of his brain injury. Um, he had since gone back to college at Northeastern. He's coaching uh, youth baseball. But everyday life is a little bit of a struggle for uh, Ryan Westmoreland. So I'll link to uh, the story about him uh, from the uh, NU student newspaper website uh, in the show notes. But um long story short is Westmoreland never recovered and you know you can't blame anyone for that. It's just tragedy maybe is too strong of work because, you know, he's living life. He's, you know, doing okay under the circumstances, but you know, he never got to see, we never got to see what he could do on the baseball field. And, you know, nobody could beat up the Red Sox for, you know, what happened to Ryan Westmoreland. And I'm just glad he's you know doing well, all things considered. He's married. He has kids. He's got his uh, career coaching. So 
nothing but their wet best to uh, Rhode Island's uh, Ryan Westphorn. So, number two prospect, August 12, 2010. Casey Kelly, right-handed pitcher. So, he, he was an interesting guy. So, he was, not only was he a two-way prospect coming out of high school, both a pitcher and a shortstop, they weren't sure where he'd land there. He was also a highly recruited uh, college quarterback or high school quarterback for college teams. So, athletic guy, highly thought of, was the main piece in the Adrian Gonzalez trade. They were, quote-unquote, bridging to Casey Kelly. He ended up getting traded for Adrian Gonzalez and had a pretty undistinguished major league career. Number three, Ryan Kalish. At the time, he was slashing 294, 382, 502, with 25 steals between Portland and Pawtucket. And he was also 11 for 30 in the major, so he made his major league debut in 2010. I love the power, speed, walks combination. So Ryan Kalish, he could have been like an Adrian Benintendi with more power, maybe a little bit more athleticism. Uh, unfortunately, Kalish's career was just derailed by injuries. He definitely had ability. He could have been an above-average major league guy, maybe Michael Conforto, but a more athletic Michael Conforto. Um, I, when, when Kalish came up, I was a believer, but it was the injuries that ruined his career. So he was your number three guy you were bridging to. Number four, Josh Reddick. At the time, he was slashing 246, 286, 429 with 11 homers in Pawtucket. And he was four for 25 with six strikeouts in the majors. Poor strike zone judgment is the issue here. So Reddick had a pretty good major league career. I remember at the time thinking his ceiling was fourth outfielder. He never really became a you know a, a plus on base guy, a plus hitter, but he played good defense. He had some pop. He was a good player on some good A's teams, some good Astros teams, kind of like a, a Hunter Renfro type. So he was your number four guy. Number five, Michael Bowden. He was a, a starting pitcher prospect, moved to the bullpen. Uh, I remember. Um, when he was in Portland, uh, getting uh, free tickets to a Manchester Fisher Cats game where they're playing Portland, all excited to see Michael Bowden. And Michael Bowden got his face kicked in. And then after he got pulled from the game, going to uh, the concession stand to get a hamburger, and the service at that concession stand was so bad, we missed an entire inning, top and bottom, just waiting for a freaking burger um, at uh, the stadium in Manchester. So hopefully they've tightened up... Uh, the concession situation in Manchester, but Michael Bowden, complete bust. Um, Red Sox ended up DFAing him, getting nothing for him. Number six, Junichi Tozawa, very good reliever in the mid 2010s. Um, he had Tommy John um, with the Red Sox, never became a starter, but a useful guy. Number seven, Anthony Rizzo, slashing 265, 326, 581. Between high A Salem and double A, 18, 19 homers, 41 walks, 104 strikeouts. So the strikeout rate was high. He showed some power, but they packaged him with Kelly for that Adrian Gonzalez trade. Imagine where the Red Sox would have been if they never did that trade. They could have re-signed Adrian Beltre. They could have kept Anthony Rizzo. They could have kept Casey Kelly, maybe packaged Casey Kelly for someone good. That 2010-2011 offseason, I, someday I'll have to do a whole show on that and how Theo just kind of trashed his whole reign with the Red Sox. But he was your number seven guy. Number eight, Lars Anderson. So he had a fast start at Portland, couldn't hit at AAA, 
couldn't hit lefties. So he was kind of your Tristan Casas type. He was tall, but maybe wasn't as like big and like bulky as Casas. But uh, he was, you know, a guy patient approach, had raw power. Just couldn't put it together at AAA, couldn't put it together in the majors. You know, really just couldn't, you know, the hit tool was okay, but he just got exposed by higher level pitching. And he was supposed to be, again, he was your Casas type. You know, at this point, he's the number eight prospects where where, uh, Casas was, you know, one or two. Granted, the system was probably a little stronger. Um, but again, a guy they were bridging to, he did make their majors where the Red Sox but didn't accomplish much. Uh, number nine, Raymond Fuentes, a guy that the Red Sox drafted in the first round, ended up profiling as a utility guy, had a cup of coffee. 10, stole me a Pimentel. I think he just, he got hurt. He's a rated pitcher. Jose Iglesias, number 11, et cetera, et cetera. So going into that off season, Theo Epstein was afraid of blocking these guys again. How many of these guys had meaningful major league careers? Okay, Westmoreland, you could never predict. Casey Kelly flamed out. Ryan Kalish got hurt. Josh Beckett, I'm sorry, Josh Reddick, pretty good player, but the Red Sox traded him for a closer. Andrew Bailey, who had his arm blew up. Michael Bowden flamed out, did nothing in the major leagues. Junichi Tazawa, pretty good relief pitcher, but you know, ne- never made it as a starter. Rizzo, guy they should have kept, but they traded. They packaged him with Kelly in um, Adrian Gonzalez trade. Lars Anderson never made it. Raymond Fuentes never made it. So in 2010, you had all these guys that Theo wanted to bridge to, and none of them did anything for the Red Sox. A couple guys did things for other organizations, but the point being, you know, you could love your minor leaguers as you know, you could crest them think they're going to be great don't want to block them you want to give them a clear path but at the end of the day you know if you're afraid of blocking Michael Bowden if you want to keep a clear path for Ryan Kalish if you trade Anthony Rizzo if you think Lars Anderson is your first baseman of the future you're fucked you are fucked so after that 2010, 2011 season, of course, the Red Sox went and, you know, traded away Anthony Rizzo and Casey Kelly for Adrian Gonzalez. And Adrian Gonzalez was a decent Red Sox player, so they traded him in 2012. They go out and say they signed Carl Crawford. They, you know, they gorged themselves in free agency. And then when that didn't work out, they dumped all those contracts on the Dodgers. And they ended up spending more money in free agency to kind of compensate for the shortcomings of these guys I just talked about. And it really wasn't until 2014, 2015, when you had the Jackie Bradley, the Mookie Betts, when you had that group, the Benintendi, the Devers, when you had those guys come up that you really had a homegrown core that you could build around. So my point is you could love your minor leaguers, but you never know what's going to happen. You never know who's going to get hurt. You never know who's going to flame out. So if you hedge the entire future of your team on minor leaguers, building a bridge to your minor leaguers, it's not a guarantee. And the Red Sox, at least they tried to dig their way out of the hole in the 2010s by 
when these guys didn't work out, spending aggressively in free agency, making aggressive trades to get external big league talent. When's the last time the Red Sox did any of those? Going to this offseason, there were over $100 million under the luxury tax. Xander Bogart's a free agent. J.D. Martinez a free agent. Nate Valdi a free agent. Did they bring in any quality free agents to replace those guys? No. The highest ranked free agent, according to Major League uh, Trade Rumors, or MLBTR, was the closer, Kenley Jansen, number 27. So $100 million in a room under the luxury tax. You couldn't sign a single top 25 free agent. So that's going to have to change. And if the guys that High and Bloom wants to bridge to don't develop, that's really going to have to change. Or more likely what's going to happen is High and Bloom's going to get fired and it's going to have to change that are the next GM. I am optimistic that 2023 will be the start of a, a new era in Major League Baseball. And, and let me explain exactly what I mean by a new era. So you had COVID disruptions in 2020 and 2021. Of course, the 2020 season was only 60 games. You had the eight teams in each league going into the playoffs. Um, and then uh, you had the bubble World Series down in Texas. Even 2021, where you had the full season, it's still you didn't have full stadiums. You had you know Toronto playing games in Dunedin and in Buffalo. Uh, so, you know, spring training, of course, wasn't normal. And then last year, what should have been a normal year, you had the lockout where you had that abbreviated spring training. Then you had to mush all the games into um, a shorter time frame. So 2023 really is kind of the first normal season we've had since before the pandemic for 2019. Part of it was not Major League Baseball's fault. Part of it was, but be that as it may, after these disruptions, it kind of does constitute kind of a break in the way baseball has gone and um, similar to other kind of breaks. So, you know, teams are going to have to adapt to these disruptions. You know, we talked about it last week with the Red Sox, where basically their entire pitching staff should be on an innings limit, but can't be because, you know, you can't have an entire rotation on an innings limit. Um and then you also have these changes that are coming to Major League Baseball. Some of these are the biggest changes that we've seen in decades. So kind of going back through baseball history, some of the other changes that have kind of ushered in new eras, if you will. So 1920 was the advent of the live ball era where they literally they changed the baseball. And during the 1920 season, also you had the unfortunate passing of uh, Ray Chapman where he was uh, beamed and, and he passed away. So 1920, they tighten up the baseball, the live ball. They reference it in the movie uh, Eight Men Out. There was also a whole host of other rules changes between the 1919 and 1920 season. Uh, but the new ball was the biggest. And also, they changed rules. They outlawed the spitball. You know, they grandfathered in guys who threw the spitter. Um, you couldn't do the shine ball anymore. You couldn't doctor the baseball. And then after Ray Chapman's passing, they made a habit of, you know, routinely, you know, changing the baseballs where that way the hitter could actually, you know, see the baseball kind of important when, you know, someone's throwing, you know, a rock hard object in your direction. So almost overnight, baseball went from, you know, the wee Willie Keeler hit him where it ain't or hit him where they ain't, you know, hit and run, stolen base, 
you know, slap singles, branded baseball to the power game. Babe Ruth, the last year of the dead ball era with the Red Sox, you know, playing at uh, not Fenway Park as we know, but at Fenway Park, you know, the, his Fenway Park was a lot harder to home was it? But his last year in the dead ball era, his first full year as an outfielder, he hit 26 home runs. And then 1920 with the Yankees, the polo grounds, he went from 26 to 59. So that just kind of shows you that change in the era. Almost, you know, literally overnight, over that one to two year span, the way the game was played changed. And the next big change would be 1946, 1947. So you had a couple things. You had the end of the war. So during the war, you know, every able-bodied player was either drafted or enlisted in the service. Uh, Left behind playing were guys who maybe could physically play baseball but couldn't pass a military physical. Guys who were old, guys who were young, um, guys who were, you know, playing until they got drafted. You had, you know, guys literally drafted midseason. Uh, but you had a lot of players from the 30s, early 40s, who by the time the war was over, they aged out of baseball. So after the war, you had a lot of new faces come in. Yeah, maybe guys who broke in during the war. It was a question of, you know, could they play or could they not play? Um, and then, of course, 1947 integration, the biggest disruption, the biggest needed disruption uh, that baseball had. And you really should call it reintegration. You know, we don't want to uh, erase or forget uh, Moses Fleetwood Walker um, and, you know, a couple other black players who uh, played Major League Baseball in the 1880s. But those were kind of isolated. You know, uh, Moses Fleetwood Walker played for the Toledo Blue Sox of uh, the American Association, I believe, might have been the Union Association. So, I mean, for all intents and purposes, it was Jackie Robinson. It was Larry Doby who really integrated baseball. And, of course, that was a monumental change to the game. So you had all the guys who kind of aged out during the war, guys who maybe came back from the war that weren't the same after not playing. And then you had kind of the initial trickle that led to a wave of, of black and in, in, in Latin players. So that certainly was a change in the era. Uh, the next change would be kind of the mini dead ball era, the 1960s. So we're going to talk about this a little bit. We talked about some of these rule changes. So, 1961 was the first year of expansion, especially well, in the American League where you had the Angels, the new Washington Senators. And the trickle-down effect was with those expansions, you had a lot of pitchers that previously weren't major league pitchers pitching in the majors. That led to a spike in home runs. Hence, you know, Roger Maris hitting 61 homers, Mickey Mantle hitting 54 of the famous, you know, 61 home run chase. And the owners didn't understand that or the commissioner's office. They, the people running the game didn't understand why there was a spike in home runs. So their answer to it was, well, we need to you know, make it fair for the pitcher. So we need to make the strike zone bigger. So for most of the 60s, the strike zone was the bottom of the kneecap to the armpit. And that led to the mini dead ball error. So you look at the numbers that guys like Sandy Koufax and Bob Gibson put up and to take nothing away from those guys, legends of the game. But imagine being Sandy Koufax or, or Gibson, you know, the hardest throwers of your era. And you can get a called strike at the armpit. Those guys had no chance, none. Or when I say those guys, the hitters had no chance. Um, I mean, imagine some of the pitchers we have today, you know, the hard throwers that we have. 
you know, imagine, you know, Tyler Glass now or Shane McClanahan. I'm thinking of Rays for some reason, but imagine some of these elite guys being able to get that pitch at the armpit a called strike. The hitter, the batters would have no chance. So that was kind of a, a little bit of a mini era where he had that mini dead ball. And of course, that ended in 1969. So 1968. Carl Yastrzemski won the American League batting title, hitting 301. So this is a little bit similar to what we're dealing with now, where offense was down. Uh, and, you know, in 1968, you had Denny McLean win 31 games. He was the first 30-game winner since the Depression, since the 30s. So baseball realized, okay, we overcorrected. We got to rein this back in. They lowered the mound. They did some other things. But you also had more expansion in 1969 and in the advent of divisional play. So that certainly was a sea change. So from 1901 to 1968, you had the American League and the National League. You had no divisions. You had basically each league was a division. Whoever finished first went to the World Series. And, you know, the purest of me kind of misses that era. I should say miss. I wasn't alive for it. Um, but going from that era where you had one eight team, two eight team leagues, two 10 team leagues to having divisions, Certainly, that was a major sea change. Uh, the next era, of course, 1976, the advent of free agency. That changed everything. Long overdue. Um, and then 95 was interesting. So 94 was actually when baseball went from two divisions in each league to three and a wild card. So even in that earlier divisional era from 1969 to 1993, each league had two divisions you only had the division winners go to the ALCS, the winner go to the World Series. And then when they had realignment in 94, you had three divisions and then the one wild card. And of course, the 94 season was cut short by the strike. So the first completed season with that new format was 95. So you had the wild card era, that post strike era. Teams had to kind of adjust to, um, you know, after the strike, you know, having that shortened season. So that was kind of the most recent era that we've gone through. And there hasn't been a dramatic change in Major League Baseball until now. I mean, there's certainly been changes, but it's been kind of a drift. It may be over the last five, 10 years, a more drastic drift in how the game is played in terms of the analytics, the shifting and everything else. But really, looking at the course of baseball, they were probably a little bit overdue for kind of a sea change for a new era. So I'm excited for these changes. Uh, the biggest one's going to be the new schedule. In my opinion, I talked about this a lot last week, especially as it relates to the Red Sox uh, looking at the schedule a little bit more globally in a, a world where you have three wild cards, the schedule has to be fairer. Um, you know, imagine having like the Red Sox compete with some scab team from the NL Central for the third wild card, which if you're an Ibluminati, that's your best case scenario. Imagine doing that under the old schedule where you had 19 games each within your division. You know, w the way baseball is where you have 30 teams and the two leagues and everything else, you can't really have everybody play everybody the exact number of times. But they need to, need to make it a little bit fair, which is part of the reason why they did it. And I also talked last week, too, about how it's an important step to make baseball less regional. So those of us in Boston, you know, hey, we have Mookie Betts coming to our stadium this year. Yay! 
I mean, we used to have him for 81 games, but we have him for three. Yay! Woo! All right, let's just be being a little bit of a hater. But, you know, let's pick someone else for the National League. Um, I don't know. I'm blanking. Um, but you get to see the stars in the other league every year and they come to your park every other year. That's kind of the bigger point. Um, and that, that is good for the game. One concern I have that I haven't heard talked about is will this new schedule suppress run scoring? And the reason why I say that is typically familiarity or favors hitters. So, you know, if you go back to 04, when the Red Sox, you know, got to Mariano Rivera in the postseason. Well, the Red Sox batters had seen Mariano Rivera a lot. Of course, in the regular season, they saw him a lot in the 2003 postseason, then the 2004 postseason. So that lack of familiarity favors pitchers. So you're going to have all these hitters facing these pitchers that they're not familiar with or facing more pitchers over the course of the season that might kind of hamper run scoring a little bit. So that's something to keep an eye on that I have not heard mentioned. Uh, generally, if you're a batter, the more pitchers you face, the the you know the, the more of a disadvantage you are at. Uh, one of the other big changes, of course, is the shift ban. So the thing with banning the shift is just in general, the game needs more singles. You know, people kind of take the single for granted. You know, if anything, it was kind of a pejorative term, you know, for a batter to be a quote unquote singles hitter. But the single is kind of like it's like water almost. You know, people you know take drinking water for granted until they're dehydrated. Really, it's what makes the game go. It, and also, too, like, you know, ex, the reason why extra base hits are exciting is because it's more exciting than a single. But if you don't have singles, you just have guys swinging for the fence, then the game's home run derby. The home runs and everything else become less special. So the game needed more singles. The singles rate has been in decline. Um, but in general, you know, I've been in the camp that these guys should be able to adjust to the shift, whether that's bunting, going to the opposite field, having a two strike approach where, okay, you're down on the count, just get the bat on the ball, put it in play. I get that it's hard. I get that pitchers these days are the, are better than they've ever been. Uh, a lot of the technology, you know, Dennis Eckersley's last year talked about the design piece, these design studios, you know, the gurus, the stop motion video, the whatever the hell it is. I get that it's harder, but, but come on. The reason why, in my opinion, these guys weren't able to adjust, weren't able to go the other way, weren't able to bunt is just because it wasn't taught. Certainly wasn't taught the amateur level, the showcases, because we're, these guys were rated on, rated on how far they could drive the ball, not using having that whole field approach. And when these guys get to professional baseball, you know, these organizations aren't doing a good enough job. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm going to give Theo Epstein a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. You know, we talked about, um, or I talked about how, um, in, you know, 1961, you had expansion and spike in home runs and owners didn't understand why there were more home runs, thought they needed to make a change. And so they made the strike zone, you know, 
eight miles tall. So at least with Theo kind of driving the bus on a lot of these changes, there's going to be some data behind it. You're not going to have people like Rob Manfred or idiot owners or the morons in the NFL competition committee who don't understand the game making decisions. So I'm going to give Theo a bit of latitude on this. Um, Theo is at least going to consider the unintended consequences and monitor for them and then adjust going forward. It's annoying that MLB had to go this far where literally the game for its entire existence, you had your your pitcher, your catcher, and then the seven other guys could go over the hell they want. Now we have to have strict rules of where guys can stand. It's annoying. I don't like we got this far, but here we are. I don't think it's going to have as much of an impact as people think. You know, there are some guys like Mark Teixeira, Jay Bruce, like the lefties who are really shifted on significantly. You know, Jay Bruce, I mean, the shift basically legislated him out of the league because he, he couldn't go the other way at all. Um, you know, hitters like that will see a boost in their batting average. But in general, I think the impact of the shift being, it's not going to be as significant as maybe a lot of people think. Um, the biggest change, the one I have the most hope for, is the pitch clock. To that I say, thank God. Thank God. God, everyone except the major league players have wanted the pitch clock for years. The fans have wanted it. The TV people have wanted it. You know, the stat heads have wanted it. And really what the pitch clock's about, it's about getting the game back to how it used to be. You know, if if this was 1872 and a major league baseball game took over three hours, Keep in mind, in the era before every stadium had lights, the first pitch was at 3 o'clock. That was, as a matter of fact, that was like the known time, 3 o'clock. So let's say it's late April in Boston, and you have no lights. You're at a wooden grandstand. Game's at 3 o'clock. If the game took more than three hours, especially like early, late in the season, you're in the fucking dark. So baseball is not designed to take as long as it's been taking. They had to do something. You know, I was one of those where, you know, the romance of baseball, game with no clock, blah, blah, blah. But the biggest thing is there were rules on the books about pace of play that were never enforced. Um, and even like as recently as 2015, when they told batters that they couldn't keep a foot, they had to keep a foot in the box. And David Ortiz freaked out and they enforced that for like a month. And then it went back to the way it's all the way it's been the last 20 30 40 years so you need a clock to keep everybody in check to keep everybody in count accountable and so it, it had to happen um and really for this rule to work it's all about enforcement it's been enforced reasonably well in the minor leagues major league baseball is gonna have to stay on top of the umpires to make sure they keep enforcing the rules um I went to a minor league game last year, a triple-A game in Syracuse, Syracuse Mets game, and the difference was noticeable. The pace was just so crisp. It, was, it wasn't intrusive at all. Like, the pitcher wasn't holding the ball, and, you know, I wasn't looking at the clock, counting down, okay, how much time does he have to throw it? You know, after a while, you didn't notice the clock. You just noticed the game was going at the proper pace. So I am a big fan of the pitch clock. 
Major League Baseball just needs to make sure that it's enforced. So a quote from Theo Epstein, quote, in the minors, the pitch timer alone saved about 25 minutes off game time. If we get close to that, if we can get 20 minutes in the big leagues, that's a good thing. It's been up to, when you talk about it's the time of game, up to three hours, 10 minutes on average. Longer for the Red Sox as always. You cut, you, you cut it down, that's a good thing. More so than time of game, it's the pace. You want to see balls in play, more action, less dead time. That's what the fan feedback tells us, end quote. So if the average time of a major league game is three hours, 10 minutes, you shave 25 off it, you get to 245, that's huge. I mean, like those of you who are listening who still have cable, you go through the cable guide, you go to a baseball game and, you know, the guide has it for three hours. And But if the game goes long, it pushes everything back. Imagine if three hours was the max again. It used to be three hours was the max. So getting a, a time of game for a major league game is huge. And hopefully, you know, they can definitely get there. It's, it's again, it's all going to be about enforcement. You know, some of the other changes, you know, the bigger bases, you know, call this the Manny Machado rule. Cause the first time I remember this being suggested was when uh, Manny Machado kept stepping on people because that asshole can't help but injure other players on the base paths. You know, it's also being sold or pitched or presented as a way to kind of increase the running game. You know, three inches on first, three inches on second. I don't think it's going to make a huge difference to the running game. This isn't going to be like the 80s when you had turf infields and it was literally a track meet. I mean, turf baseball was fun. You know, you'd have balls go through the infield, guys taking off, running all over the place. The only people it wasn't fun for were the players, you know, guys like, you know, Andre Dawson, who, you know, their knees were destroyed playing on god-awful surfaces. Uh, but, you know, the, the big bases, they look a little goofy, but we'll get used to it. You know, I'd rather have, like, an 18-inch base than have it like, you know, the slow-pitch softball, the double base. I remember... Um, my old job when we had a, a company softball league, there was like the double base, like on first, like you had the white base in play, then the orange base out of play. And the runners would step on the orange base. They wanted to then want employees getting hurt on the softball field, the company softball game. So this is a little bit like that, a um, little goofy, but you know, I think we'll get used to it. You know, Alex Cork, you know, compared them to pizza boxes. I'm not really worried about it. And then the limited throwover rule, I don't think that's going to be too much of an issue. Just in general, the running game has kind of become less and less of a factor over the years. You don't see pitchers throwing over to first base as much. I mean, you have your Clay Buckholtz types where their head case is on the mound and they throw over excessively because they don't know what the hell they're doing out there. But other than that, you know, I think, you know, it'll be fine. I don't think it's going to make a huge difference. Um. Just in general, other changes that could, you know, I'd like to see. I, you know, I don't think these changes have addressed the problem of the increased velocity, the increased quality of breaking stuff that major league pitchers are throwing. You know, the training methods they have where, you know, the, the Cleveland Guardians can draft a guy to college throwing 91, you know, whether they're training or biomechanics or whatever take that college guy throwing 91, get him throwing 97. And all of a sudden he's a major league front of the rotation guy or say, or the breaking balls, the design pieces. I don't see how that's been addressed. And I don't know how you address it. 
you know, one idea that's been thrown out there or maybe even tested in the indie leagues was uh, moving the mound back, you know, cause that'll certainly give the batter a longer look at the ball. Um, you know, my only concern there is if you move the mound back, how much harder is it to throw strikes? Um, do we want more walks? So I don't know what the results of any testing they've done there. One idea I have that I haven't heard suggested is just make the ball bigger. If you make the ball bigger, it's not going to go as, it's not going to, A, when it's thrown, it's not going to be thrown as fast because it's a bigger ball. You're going to have more air resistance against it. And also a bigger ball, it's not going to travel as far when it's hit. Kind of like a softball, but, you know, I'm not saying make the ball softer. Just make it marginally bigger. And also, I'd imagine that uh, a larger ball is harder to spin. But then again, I could be wrong on that. Also, like to see them create crack down on the phantom injury list or the phantom DL, the phantom IL, you know, the, the IL shouldn't be a taxi squad or you shouldn't be able to stash guys on there. So you can just bring up fresh arms whenever your bullpen is shot. I'd like to see that crack down on a little bit. And also the three batter rule managers love to piss and moan about the three batter rule. I like to see it expanded because one, I guess loophole for lack of a better term is you know, you can have a pitcher start an inning and not face three batters. So managers, for whatever reason, they love letting their a pitcher start an inning and quote-unquote giving them a base runner. There's nothing, it annoys me to no end when, you know, you let the starting pitcher start the sixth inning, gives up a broken bat single or an infield error, then all of a sudden he has a base runner on and the manager gets him out of there. It's like, really? What did this guy do to get pulled from the game? And you made us sit through the commercials between innings. You made us sit through this guy warming up. He gives up a little cheap flare, and now we have to sit through the next guy warming up. So I'd like to see that rule tightened up where if a pitcher starts an inning, he still has to face the three batters. So I haven't heard that proposed or talked about, but that's just more of a me thing than it is uh, a baseball thing. Tying all this back into the Red Sox, I had a memory uh, pop up on my personal Facebook. Uh, it was actually my knee-jerk reaction to the Andrew Benintendi trade. So I'm just going to read this, and we'll see how uh, close my knee-jerk reactions were to what actually happened. So, quote, thinking about the Benintendi trade, I was pretty low on Benintendi after this last season. There is a more than fair chance that he's a flame out, and we've already seen the best of him. If he does turn it around, in KC and regain his 2018 form, this trade could look really bad. Franchi is also the same age as Benintendi. It's only played 95 major league games. Usually guys figure things out by 26. On the other hand, you have to acknowledge the possibility that Franchi Cordero cuts down on his K rate, stays healthy, and is better than Benny in 2021 and 2022. The pitcher from the Mets, parentheses, this is Josh Winkowski, was their number 20 prospect, Reportedly, none of the players to be named later will be top 10 prospects. These are guys with a ceiling of back-end starters, faceless relievers who throw hard and have a couple of decent seasons, or utility platoon guys. In other words, exactly the type of players the race have pumped out over the years. The way we have to look at this is the Red Sox sold low on Benintendi and return got a player who might have a higher ceiling, but critically to the Red Sox is an extra year of team control. Additionally, they got four magic beans. 
This tell me the Red Sox have no real expectation of competing in the next two years when they still controlled Benintendi. They should be better than last year. I'll touch on this closer to opening day, but the best we can hope for is 85 wins and a more watchable team than in 2020. So, interesting stuff. So, starting at the end, best we can hope for is 85 wins. They won 92. So, my best case scenario is off by, by seven games. All right. Shame on me. But, in terms of my evaluation of Ben Benintendi and Franchi, so, Ben and Teddy never really did regain his 2018 form in terms of power. Um, but in terms of batting average, defense, and athleticism, you know, the Royals did get that in, you know, 2022. Um, they trade him to the Yankees. So the Red Sox, it wasn't so much letting Ben and Tendi go that made them look really bad. It was the return. So I know that Franchi was the same age as Ben and Tendi, only played 95 major league games. Usually guys figure things out by 26. When I say usually guys, usually major league players figure things out by 26. So Franchi never figured it out. He never cut down on his strikeout rate. He was healthy. So I guess that's a thing, but the production was never there. He swung at everything and he was never better than Ben in 2021. Never better than Ben in 2022. And in terms of the extra year of team control, well, Haim designated Franchi for assignment after 2021, took him off the 40-man, brought him back on a minor league deal, and then during the 2022 season when uh, Travis Shaw sucked, when Bobby Dahlbeck sucked, when they needed a warm body, they put Franchi back on the 40-man, called him up in 2022. He did what he did last year. And then ended up getting DFA'd again. So if they wanted to keep Franchi on the 40-man roster, they could have controlled him for the 2023 season. Actually, they could have kept him for 23 and 24 because when they sent him down 21, that that uh, affected his service time. So if the Red Sox thought Franchi was anything, they could have kept him. They could have had him for two more years, but instead they designated him for assignment, and now he is with the Orioles on a minor league deal. Um Josh Winkowski was the Mets' number 20 prospect. He sucks. He's a sinker ball guy who can't strike guys out. He's a 4A pitcher. He will amount to nothing. He is nothing. And then the, the, the players to be named later were nothing. So I'd say I was reasonably close, even with Ben Benintendi not achieving his quote-unquote full potential or not matching what he did when he first came up in 17 and 18. He's still a viable major league player. Um, when the Red Sox sent him to the Royals and the Mets or whatever in that three-team trade, they didn't get any viable major league players. So loss for Hyam. I was pretty close to being right, even if there were a couple things I was off about. And if I was too bearish on the 21 team, well, everything I was afraid about would happen in 2021 ended up happening in 2022. So that is going to be a wrap for this week's episode. So I touched on some of the stuff coming out of spring training. We're going to really tackle spring training and some of the early narratives next week as more players report, as more media people get down there, as these guys actually start working out. So we're looking forward to that. Uh, show news. Um, unfortunately, the, our host Anchor changed their criteria to run ads. Uh, we met the old criteria. We haven't met the new criteria yet. 
those fuckers moving the goalposts on us. Uh, so long story short, so we need more listeners on Spotify for Anchor to let us run ads and let us monetize the show. So keep telling anyone you know who's a Red Sox fan or a baseball fan about the show. Um, have them listen, subscribe. Make sure you listen and subscribe. Please rate and review on the podcatcher of your choice if you have not already. Also, please like the Fenway on Fire Facebook page. And also send your audio message via the voice message link in the show description. That is a wrap for episode 10 of the Fenway on Fire podcast. We will see you uh, next week. We'll talk a little bit more about where this team is going. And also we'll do a little bit of a world baseball classic uh, as we get closer to the start of the tournament. Thank you, everyone, and we will see you soon.